Well, good morning. Glad you're with us. Uh, grab your Bible. If you don't have one, there's one in the seat pocket in front of you. And if you want to keep it, it's yours. Um, anybody read the headlines lately? Or maybe you're like me and you kind of try and avoid the media altogether nowadays, but you look through and you see just kind of one thing after another, there's a, a thousand bad things to every kind of one good thing that pops up as you read through. What, there's a, you know, down in Florida, a building that collapses and, and all these people are trapped and die. Uh, I think yesterday there was another shooting. Uh, go down the list, uh, just under a million abortions in the U.S. pretty much every year. And you look at all this stuff, and you look around it, and what's happening in the world, and maybe you, like me, sometimes look around and go, can it get any worse? Like, ah, this is horrible. You look, look at how people are trying to take our kids and destroy them, the, the way they're trying to change our schools to take kids out of the family, and not every school is that way. But you look around and go, can it get any worse? Can evil become any worse? What's going to happen? Now, we have this thing where we, we think it's worse now than it's ever been. And you know what? Every generation kind of seems to go through that. Oh, it's worse now than it's ever been. Well, turn to Psalm 36, please. Because in Psalm 36, David kind of writes the same thing. <laughs> David looks around and he's like, look at the world. God, what's up with this? He starts with a lament. This is a, it begins with a lament and then it changes. But he looks around and he goes, look at the evil, look at the wickedness. And then he moves on. But how do we find joy in the midst of evil and darkness? That's the question. What is shaping us? Is the world and its circumstances shaping us? Or when we look at God, do we let God shape us? And what we learn about him then shapes how we view our circumstances. Psalm 36. Now remember, a lot of the Psalms are poems. And they were written in order to be worship. And so the church would use this in the early church. And before the church started, Israel would use these psalms in their worship. And so we read through this. And again, in English, some of the, the poetry doesn't translate as well. But it's beautiful the way he starts. Let's start in uh, Psalm 36, 1 through 4. Transgression speaks to the wicked deep in his heart. There is no fear of God before his eyes, for he flatters himself in his own eyes, that his iniquity cannot be found out and hated. The words of his mouth are trouble and deceit. He has ceased to act wisely and do good. He plots trouble while on his bed. He sets himself in a way that is not good. He does not reject evil. Couldn't we say the same thing right now? You know, he, he singles out a person, the wicked person, but you get enough of, of those people in a society, and the whole culture is going to go a certain way. And it's always been that way. It's not like this is new, what we're going through in the United States right now. It's always been this way. And so he singles out kind of one person. Let's just look at this to get an idea. And again, it's a lament. He looks, and he's like, such wickedness. My goodness, what am I going to do with this? And the temptation is to see that, that wickedness and have it start to change us. But I want to focus on one thing real quick. Why, why is there this wickedness and evil? What, what is kind of the root? Look at verse 1 again. It says, transgression speaks to the wicked deep in his heart. There is no fear of God before his eyes. The wicked person is defined by their rejection of God. That's where it starts. 
Remember Proverbs 1.7. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Do you want to make wise decisions? Do you want to live wisely? It begins with the fear of the Lord. Now, that fear is more of an, an awe of who he is. And as we get to know him, that fear should increase. But it is also a piece of fear of he's going to judge someday. He is the creator. He's created morality. Uh, he sent his son to die for us, but he's the one in charge. And so there is some fear of someday I'm going to stand before my maker. And there will be judgment and there is heaven and there is hell. But this fear is awe. And the wicked person is defined by their lack of fear. They reject God. The godless person deludes himself in believing that God will neither find out his sin or hate it. You see that he writes here. You follow the wickedness because either there is no God, and we live in a, a society where a lot of people, there is no God, and so I can do whatever I want. Of course it's going to lead to wickedness. Or, we've seen this a lot in the church, we're going to take the, the Bible and we're going to remove the idea of sin and judgment and make it feel good. Your truth can be your truth. And even in Christian churches, they stop talking about God's morality and, and boom, there's no fear of God anymore. I can do whatever I want without the fear of who God is or the judgment that's going to come. And you see in these verses, without God, people are ambitious to declare good what is clearly wrong and bad what is clearly right. He writes it here. This is 3,000 years ago, by the way. We could write this right now. You know, look around and people declare what is good, what is clearly evil, and vice versa. Now, if you look at some of these arguments at first, they sound good. I, you know, I'll refer to abortion again. You know, the great argument for abortion began with, well, women should be equal with men. They should have the freedom to not be pregnant, because men are free to not be pregnant. God kind of made us that way. <laughs> and so women want to be, they should be free to not be pregnant. So that argument sounds kind of good at first, but it leads to the murder <laughs> of an, a being made in God's image, a human made in God's image. Or go down the list of other things that sound good at first. In our society right now, you, should, you can define your own truth. We're going to be non-judgmental. That sounds good. That sounds loving and tolerant. The problem is, there is a God who designed the world and created it to work in a certain way. And when we go away from that, it's not best for us. It sounds good to say people should be able to love whoever they want to love. That sounds so nice. But like Scripture says, there's a way that seems right to a man. And in the end, it leads to destruction. And so we read through and we see without God, good and evil get confused. And if we're not careful... We look at our society, we look at this, and it can start to shape us. So, being the artist that I am, th this is man. <laughs> this, is one, this is us. This is pretty good. It's not a starfish. I know what you're thinking. <laughs> but, you know, this is us. We are, we are moldable. You know, and in Scripture, we see very clearly in Romans, it says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Throughout the New Testament, the will of God is that we be conformed to the image of Jesus. So God is, it's called sanctification. There's a process. God wants to make us more and more like Jesus. And hopefully we're, we're soft in his hands, right? And he can change us. He can conform us. He can mold us. But if we're not careful, the world can start to mold us. Either it can mold us in its image or the opposite can happen. We can see these things in the world and it can make us angry. 
It can make us depressed. And then we become enemies with the people that we want to reach. I mean, you see this evil, really, they're victims of the enemy. And, and there's this tendency in American church to see the evil and then hide from it. And so we can get kind of molded, again, depression. Where does depression come from? Looking around, focusing on self, and we start getting molded in certain ways that God wouldn't have us mold. See, the leg falls off. <laughs> this must be old clay. But so the question I want to ask is, what is molding you? Is the world and the society and the, the evil and the wickedness, is it molding you either in its image or molding you against it? And this, look in the mirror. Do you, do you have depression? Do you have anxiety? Are you kind of pessimistic about where things are going? Those things aren't of God, right? God, that's letting the world have some control over you that God says, no, don't let the, the world have that control. Don't let it mold you either in its image or even against it in a harsh way. Look at David's response. He looks around, he laments in the same way we do, but then he responds this way in verse 5 and 6. Your steadfast love, O Lord, extends to the heavens. Your faithfulness to the clouds. Your righteousness is like the mountains of God. Your judgments are like the great deep. Man and beast you save, O Lord. David looks at the world and he goes, Ugh. and then he turns and he looks at God. And he starts talking about the, the characteristics of God that are shaping him. This is our answer, by the way. It's really this simple, but it's not that simple. Life is happening. Look to God and look at how great he is. I mean, if you get nothing else out of today, get this. God is great. He's real, for one. I, there is a God. He's real. And, and there's not many ways. He is one God. In the Old Testament, his name is Yahweh. He revealed himself in Jesus. He's the only way. And he is great. He's not against mankind. He's not up there like the kid with the magnifying glass, you know, burning ants. You know, a lot of people have this image of God. He is great. You know, we quote often A.W. Tozer that whatever comes to mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you. And it is. When you think about God, what comes to mind? Just, just judgment, harsh. Maybe you have bad experiences in church which manipulate the way you think about God. Maybe you had a bad relationship with your father that manipulates the way you look at God. And so we look here and we want to get a clear view of who God is. This is in your notes. The wise person is shaped by who God is, not by the state of the world. We are shaped by who God is. And so I want to notice four life-changing truths in these two verses. And here's the first one, verse 5. Your steadfast love, O Lord, extends to the heavens. Maybe you have a different translation and it says your loving kindness. Sometimes that word is translated mercy. It's kind of a difficult word because in English, you know, we just have the one word love or loving kindness. But here, steadfast love, it includes love, it includes kindness, it includes mercy. It's unfailing kindness. It's, uh, this is in your notes. God love, God's love cannot, does not change and cannot be destroyed. That kind of wraps that up. His love does not change and it cannot be destroyed. Do you realize that you can't change the way God thinks about you? You can't do anything to make him love you more. You can't do anything to make him love you less. 
If you are in Christ, you are made new because of what Jesus did on the cross. And now you are a son or daughter of the king. And he looks at you and says, I love you. Now, you can disappoint him. And because he loves us, he will discipline us at times. But his love never changes. You know, I think as a parent, I mean, I look at my kids and go, there's nothing they could do to make me love them any less. I might be disappointed at times. I might get angry at times. Right? But I I love them. I'm always going to love them. And, And I'm just kind of this finite very, very, very finite being. Maybe you've had this conversation before with your kids. I love you. I love you more. I love you to the moon. I love you to the moon and back. You know, I love you a million billion. And I always answer, I love you all that plus one. It just makes it easier. <laughs> but, but that's what David does right here. Look at it. He, he says, um, again, verse five, your steadfast love, O Lord, extends to the heavens. I mean, that, that's the picture that it's, it's endless, It goes on forever and ever and ever. Uh, Romans 8, 35 and 38 through 39, Paul writes the same idea. It says, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels angels, nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Do you believe that? God's love cannot be destroyed and it never changes. God loves you. You Scripture makes very clear. In the New Testament, in Romans, that God demonstrates his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Do you realize that? God looked at you while you were in rebellion against him. said, I love you. I'm going to take on flesh and die for you. Now, many will reject that. Many will reject what he did for them. But Jesus' death is good enough to cover everyone. He loved us so much, he died for us. So that's the first one. Here's the second one. In a world of broken promises, God always does what he says. Anybody ever broken a promise to you? You know, any, anybody ever turned against you, slandered you? I mean, go down the list. Things ever not lived up to what they seem? Well, again, verse 5, second half, says your faithfulness extends to the clouds. Faithfulness, again, reaches to the skies. It's the same idea. Your faith, your loving kindness never ends. Your faithfulness never ends. God never breaks a promise. People do all the time. God never does. Last week, we looked in Proverbs, and we tried to discern through between principles found in Scripture and promises found in Scripture, and there are a lot of promises. I will never leave you nor forsake you, he says. Jesus says, I'm coming back that where I am, you may be also. So he has this promise to return. He has this promise that when we die, we are with him if our faith is in Jesus. We have these promises. How about this one? All things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. That's a promise. Not all things are good. All things he will work together for good. He always does what he says. He's faithful. And this faithfulness guarantees the constancy of God's love for his people. He's not as fickle as you. He's not as wishy-washy as me. He is steady and steadfast in his love. It will not change. And here's the third. In a world that celebrates wickedness, 
God's righteousness stands firm. Verse 6, your righteousness is like the mountains of God. You know, picture a mountain, giant mountain, immovable, right? It's steady. It's staying. It's not going anywhere unless, I guess, an earthquake and it shakes a little bit. But it stays unless it's slide mountain and half of it goes away. But that's not what it's talking about. <laughs> this is a big rocky mountain that, that, that's going to stay right there. That's what he's talking about, right? <laughs> and, and what is it? It's his righteousness. What's that word mean, righteousness? It means ethically right. God defines right from wrong, and he doesn't change. Right and wrong has not changed. Sin has been sin for it does not change. In a church nowadays that wants to change, oh, God has changed. No, he hasn't. What he says here is still right from wrong, and we can trust him. He's not going to change. Are we keeping up with, with God? You know, culture, you hear this all the time, uh, you know, that we want to keep up with, be on the right side of history, right? Well, let's just be on God's side, and we'll be on the right side of history because he doesn't change. His righteousness is consistent. And he's never lost control. This is your fourth point there. In a world that appears to be out of control, our God is in complete control. The second half of six there. Your judgments are like the great deep man and beast you save, O Lord. His judgments. God looks at what's happening. He knows what's happening. And he can decide how to handle that. His judgments are always right. He's always in control. Listen to this in Romans 11. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments, and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. God is great. Have you ever said this? I know God says, but. <laughs> or, I can't believe in a God that would and it's something biblical. We don't get to define who God is. God is, and he doesn't change. And so we can understand, we can trust that he doesn't change, although we won't always understand what he's doing. We look around and we go, look at this evil. How could you allow this, God? And David does that too. And other prophets in the Old Testament, read Habakkuk, other prophets will look around, God, you say you're good, you say you're powerful, but what's happening here? And God's like, slap, I'm in control, I'll deal with it. <laughs> you know, I, I'm going to send these people to judge these people because of what's happening. He's like, but wait a minute, they're even more wicked than these people. I know, and I'm going to judge them for that too. I mean, God is in control. We don't have to understand. Consider Jesus. Remember, before he went to the cross, when he was on his way, several times, he would kind of, you picture him walking with the disciples, and he'd stop, and he'd turn around and say, by the way, we're going to Jerusalem, and there, they're going to kill me. And how did his disciples respond? Bad idea. No, 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 no. Let's do it a different way, right? When Jesus went to the cross, remember that night, he had this amazing meal. He has the Lord's Supper, or the Last Supper, where he institutes the Lord's Supper. They go into a room. The first thing Jesus does is he takes off his clothes, he wraps a towel around his waist, and he washes their feet. That's the lowest of the low job anybody could do. God in flesh 
does that for these dirty sinner people, us. He washes their feet. Then they have this meal. Then they go to the garden where he's arrested. And what do his best friends do? They all abandon him. He had just washed their feet. He told them what he was going to do. They all run away. One of them was the one that betrayed him. That's not fair. Jesus then, you know, we talked about Peter somewhat recently. You know, Peter denies Jesus while Jesus is on trial. Peter, one of his best friends, denies him. Then the next day, Jesus is taken out and he's beaten. He's beaten to the point where he's unrecognizable as a human, it says. He's told to carry his own cross. It's probably the cross member trying to carry that from where they beat him and judged him up to the mountain where they're going to crucify him. And he is so weak, he, he's, he can't make it. God in flesh can't make it. So somebody else helps him carry it. They get up there, they nail him to the cross. They slander him, right? His disciples are gone. They put him on the cross. They nail his hands, they nail his feet. You know how you die on a cross? Suffocation. When you're hanging, you can't breathe. And so you push up, Take a breath and go to, and you're pushing up on the nail that's in your feet. And eventually, you, you lose the strength. And you don't die of blood loss. You die of suffocation. That's how our God died. That is the greatest evil that has ever happened in the history of the world. The disciples didn't get it. But God's judgments are always perfect. He saw that. Not only did he see that, he planned for that. That was God's method of redeeming mankind. That through Jesus' death, we could be saved. That is the greatest good. They didn't get it. And so many people now, too, they look at that and go, I don't get it. That doesn't make any sense. God became flesh and died for me that I could have life. Yes, and we can trust him because his judgments are good. In that situation, the disciples said, this is not good. They were wrong. God used that for good. My point with that and drawing this out is his judgments. Again, this is verse 6. Your judgments are like the great deep the ocean where you can't find the bottom of it, we can trust him is the point. Whatever's happening, you look around, you don't know better than God. No man does. No woman does. We can trust him. And often we won't get it. Listen, the wise person is shaped by who God is, not by the state of the world. Again, the starfish here that's supposed to be a person. <laughs> look at who God is. is. Are these truths shaping you? He's loving He's powerful. His judgments are perfect. Do these shape the way you view the world? If so, when you hear the stories of what's happening around the world, it's not a, right? You know, it hits us. Oh, now I'm depressed. Now I'm angry. Now I got to get back, whatever. No, we are steady because we trust. (laughs) See? (laughs) That's what the world can do to us. But when we look at God and understand who he is, we are steadfast and firm because the wise person is shaped by who God is not by the state of the world here's why I love this psalm and others we get a big view of God how big is your God he is great he created the universe we can't even see to the end of it we can't even hardly see past our own solar system God is great and when you look at him and then you look around you're like yeah we can get through this Because he is so big, so loving, so wonderful. So real quick, four things. that When who God is becomes the dominant thing in your life, you will see these in your life. Four things. When, When you let God shape you, you'll see these four things. Here's the first one. You treasure your relationship with God. Look at verse seven. 
after David laments the evil, and he says, but God, this is you. Now he shares kind of that, the application in his life. Verse 7, how precious is your steadfast love, O God. How precious, valuable, right? We treasure our relationship with God. That, that word precious, it's priceless. Do you view God's love for you and for this earth as priceless? Or are we kind of, eh, ho-hum about it? When we fear him, the weight of his love is priceless to us. Now, because they use the word precious, I couldn't help but think of Gollum. You know, remember in the Lord of the Rings? You know, and he's like, all he wants is his rings. My precious. Um, But he was single-minded on that ring. That's us. As Jesus followers who love the Lord, we are single-minded on him. I'm going through this, yes, but God, I know you love me. I'm single-minded there, and that will impact how I view all of this. Single-minded on him. You know, last week we talked about what's on your pedestal. Put God up there, and the rest works out. He is precious. And when you let him shape you, you will feel that way. You will treasure his love for you. Here's the second one. You will find hope and refuge in him. Second half of verse 7, the children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of your wings. This is what's going to happen. When you let him, who he is, shape how you view the world, you take refuge in him. The picture here, he says, under your wings. You know, chickens, we, we hatched chicks many years ago. Maybe you've seen that. And sometimes we would let the hen out, and she'd run around the grass, and the little chicks would run around. And sometimes they'd wander off, but if they got scared, they all ran right back to the mom and, you know, hid under her wings. And you've heard probably of, of uh, fires in a chicken coop, and they'll find the hen like this, dead, but all the chicks underneath are still alive. I mean, that's this picture. We can run to God and hide under him. And Jesus died so we can do that. But we can find our refuge in him and our hope. We are safe in him. Three, you experience satisfaction because of him. Verse eight, they feast on the abundance of your house and you give them drink from the river of your delights. Now, it looks like it's talking about food and drink, but it's not. This is a spiritual metaphor. Right here, you satisfy. When we run to him and take refuge, he satisfies, meaning we can be content with whatever's happening, whether rich, whether poor, whether sick, whether, go down the list. We can be content, satisfied in him. Preston taught recently in Psalms where it said, in you are pleasures forevermore. Our delight is in him. And so we are satisfied We are content. And here's the last one. You are given life through him. You are given life through him. Verse 9. For with you is the fountain of life. In your light do we see light. He is life. Remember Jesus. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Life is found in Jesus. Life and light is in God. You have life. And when you have life in him, then he can start to mold you into the image of Christ. And then he ends with a prayer, 10 through 12. He says, Oh, continue your steadfast love to those who know you and your righteousness to the upright of heart. Let not the foot of arrogance come upon me, nor the hand of the wicked drive me away. There the evildoers lie fallen, 
They are thrust down, unable to rise. How does he pray? Right? He looks around at the wickedness. And then he says, here's some things that are true about you, God. You're, you're loving, right? Uh, you're, you're loving, you're righteous, you're faithful, you're just. And he, he looks at all of that, and he says, now, God, continue in that. It's kind of weird, right? He's God. He doesn't need to be told to do that. He's going to. But that's part of prayer. And so he looks at God and says, continue to do what I know you want to do. Continue in your steadfast love. And in this prayer, he says, and don't let me go the way of the wicked. Because there, it's destruction. That's how he ends it. That's the place of destruction that ends in eternal judgment. He says, I don't want to go that way. So God, protect me. I see all this evil, and I know it could shape me into its image. So God, protect me from that. Continue your loving kindness on me and keep me close to you. And that's our prayer. But he asks, continue your loving kindness to who? He says, continue your steadfast love to those who know you. Does God love everybody? Absolutely. Absolutely. But not everybody's going to experience that love. Because when we find life in Jesus by believing he died on the cross and rose again, then we are adopted into his family. That's a different relationship with God. That's who he's talking about. That we will continue our steadfast love, his love for those who know him. Jesus is the only way. And so all these good things we're talking about, only found by surrendering to Jesus as Lord. And he will continue in his loving kindness. Now God's heart, we see it in the New Testament. He desires that none would be lost, but for all to come to repentance. It doesn't mean everybody will repent. It means he desires that. And this puts some emphasis on us. We know this God. We are the light. Now, Jesus is the light. Then in and through us, we can share this light to others that they could find life and experience who God is. The loving, faithful, righteous, and just God. If you leave with anything, leave with this. God is great. Now, as we move to, to worship, as we move to sing, meditate on these things. He is faithful. He is righteous. He is just. He is loving. And, and as we sing, think about the words. Maybe you shouldn't sing. Maybe you should just listen to it. Meditate on it. But what, I'm pray, what I prayed for this morning, that the things of the world, the evil, the trouble, whatever it is, that at this point, those would drift out. And we would look at God as he is and let him fill us. So as we move to this, let all those words, let all those other things, let those drift away and think about God alone and let's worship. Father, we love you. God, I, I thank you for your word that we can get to know who you are. I thank you that you are loving, that you are righteous, that you are just, that you are faithful. We can trust you completely. And God, I beg that you would shape us. We need you. God, we look around at the world and we can be molded into its image or we can become bitter and anxious and angry and pessimistic. God, I, that's not who we would be when we're trusting you. You fill us with the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, God, mold us into your image. Get bigger in our eyes, please, so that we can live the life you would have for us, that we could worship you well. And as we worship now, God, I, I pray that you would get bigger and bigger in our minds and in our hearts, that we would be overwhelmed by you because it's what you deserve. In Jesus' name, amen.